Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Yesterday, the FBI executed a search warrant on former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. Many people have pointed this out, and I'll do the same thing. I don't recall anything quite like this in American history. And, of course, it makes one curious about the decision-making process for a move like this. And to help us understand this event, the reasoning that led up to it, we've asked uh, Michael Tabman to join us. He's former head of the FBI's Minneapolis field office, served in the Bureau for 24 years, where he had the command of 250 agents across three states. He also served on the FBI New York Police Department Drug Task Force and commanded the investigation into the Red Lake High School massacre in 2005. After retiring, he founded Spirit Asset Protection, a corporate security firm specializing in pre-employment screening, and he appears uh, regularly on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, and other networks. He's the author of Walking the Corporate Beat, Police School for Business People, and other books as well, and you can follow him at michaeltabman.com. Michael, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for having me. Let's, uh, let's start out with a few basic questions. Who had to sign off on this warrant for it to be issued and executed? Ultimately, a federal judge had to sign off on the actual warrant. But getting the affidavit completed is no small task, even if on lower-level matters, drug cases, organized crime cases. Uh, this went up and down the hierarchy of the FBI before it's presented to the U.S. attorney or the assistant U.S. attorney. I'm sure it went up and down uh, that chain of command, and it would not surprise me if the attorney general himself signed off on presenting this to a federal judge. Wow. Uh, so what conditions have to be present to justify such a war? In other words, what kind of things do they look at? Uh, so what the agent and, and the prosecutor must present in an affidavit is probable cause, which we hear often, mm-hmm. is a standard of proof that is not quite what you need to convict someone. It's not beyond a reasonable doubt. Is it, is it more probable than not okay. that, you are, that the evidence you are seeking is at the location that you are specifying at the time you're going to be there? Okay. Yeah, so you've got to specify or time narcotics. and location. Okay. Right, right. So like when I was working narcotics, we saw a suitcase go into a house, and we watch it for a while, and no one comes out. We can say, Your Honor, we believe that's narcotics based on these facts. And it's there now because we saw it go in uh, last night. We've been here all day, and we haven't seen anyone leave. Mm-hmm. As opposed to uh, we saw it go in six months ago. We haven't been maintaining surveillance, and it may still be there. Right. That's not probable cause. Gotcha. Specificity. Gotcha. Okay. Specificity. There are people claiming that this represents a weaponizing of the Justice Department. You worked for a long time in the FBI. You understand how things go. How politicized does it get in the uh, the force? The FBI, one of the highest priorities we have is public corruption. And if you look back in FBI history, going back certainly to ABSCAM, uh, you will see that the FBI has conducted search warrants and arrested political figures of all levels uh, from both parties. And so within the FBI, you know, the Public Corruption Unit exercises great control over affidavits and search warrants for political uh, individuals, politicians. And that is to partially ensure that no one person's bias, political bias, is affecting the interpretation of the facts. So there's a lot of scrutiny to ensure that the facts are are the facts that be presented fairly and in the right context. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I'm I'm curious. 
what would be the role of the Secret Service in all of this? Because there are Secret Service agents down there at Mar-a-Lago, I'm sure. How, would the director of the FBI have called the director of the Secret Service uh, to make sure there was not going to be any you know, potential conflict? I'm sure that there would have to have been a high-level uh, contact between the director of the FBI and the Secret Service. You don't want to show up uh, and surprise a bunch of armed Secret Service agents. <laughs> right. uh, you know, not knowing you're another group that's armed. So I'm sure there's coordination, and really the Secret Service, I'm sure, did the right thing, which is to allow the FBI to proceed uh, unhindered. The, the way this is being talked about, it's as this is the recovery of the 15 boxes of classified materials that uh, the president, former president, moved from uh, Washington down to his home there. Who determines if a document is classified or not? Generally, the originator of the document. So uh, the FBI, if we classified something as secret and then we sent it to another agency, they would, they would respect that as secret. So generally, whoever originates the document... In this particular case, it was a matter of classification that could have come from other agencies besides the FBI. It could have been the CIA, uh, National Security Agency, or other documents that belonged within the uh, possession of the National Archives. So the president couldn't just say in defense, well, I took these because I unclassified them. Well, there is a, generally a process for unclassifying. Okay. Uh, you can make that argument. I, I don't think it'll wash. Um, they are, he's no longer the president, and therefore he does not have the power yeah. to yeah. make that decision now, and mm-hmm. certainly not to keep this uh, to belong in the National Archives, that belong to the U.S. government, the U.S. people, in his personal possession. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can, can we tell from this act, I, I, what I'm trying to figure out here, is, is this a discrete problem? that is being uh, resolved or solved by this investigation, and the discrete problem being the removal of these 15 boxes of classified documents? Or is this part of a larger case that's being developed uh, against the president because of actions related to January 6th or whatever? Okay, that's an excellent question. Uh, when we seek a search warrant, again, we have to be specific in what we are searching for and why. And when you go in and, and do a search warrant, just like uh, any white-collar case, we go in there looking for documents, and we find, you know, half a brick of cocaine sitting on the top of the desk. We seize that, and that is evidence. It was within, the, you know, the plain view doctrine, as we call it. Mm-hmm. We saw it coming in. So we go in, uh, we being the FBI, I'm long retired, but let's say the FBI goes in and the legitimate affidavit the forth the facts, probable cause to look for these documents, and they find other documents related to January 6th. That's all fair game. Okay. Now, it could, it, well, it could happen, though, and it's happened before in, in history, not the FBI necessarily, where, you know, try to use the probable cause in one thing as a pretext. So, for example, if you're going in and you want to see computers, and in there you find, uh, let's say, uh, drugs uh, at the bottom of a drawer in which a computer would never fit. Well, that's outside the scope of the warrant, and that would be quashed. Okay. So, if you, you know, as a ruse, there are checks and balances. Yeah. Uh, and what happens if they find nothing significant, and what happens if they do find something significant? Where do we go from there? 
Okay, if they find nothing significant, then no further action will be taken. And as general practice, the affidavit will remain sealed. If they find uh, you know, information that leads to a criminal investigation, obviously, take discovery, uh, the affidavit will be unsealed and if, you know, the attorneys will be able to look at it. And they would move to quash the subpoena based on lack of probable cause. Uh, my personal non-attorney opinion is even if um, we do not find it, nothing's done, I believe that the affidavit will eventually be unsealed in, because there's going to be such a demand for it by media, yeah. by yeah. NGOs, non-government organizations, the public, uh, that a, a judge is going to rule that's the best interest of public policy to unseal it. And, and let me also say that it can be unsealed with conditions, such as redaction of sensitive information okay. or so much personal information that should not be in the public domain. Okay. Uh, one last question for you. Given your experience, given your reading of history, how significant a move is this to go to a president's, a former president's home? Oh, it's quite significant. And, you know, we say it's unprecedented, uh, not because the opportunity has been there, has been turned down. I mean, certainly if Nixon had not been, you know, pardoned, he might have been doing it, you know, for him. Right. So it's unprecedented because it hasn't happened. But it is a huge move in general because we don't want, we being society and we being the FBI and DOJ, do not want to be accused of weaponizing you know, the law enforcement power, right. Right. Uh, which, is, which is why I think they were so careful in making this decision. I think if and when that affidavit comes out, I'll be surprised if it doesn't have an overwhelming amount of probable cause, because the blowback that would come from, you know, abusing the process would outweigh any political advantage that might be gained by uh, exercising that. And I, and I think the FBI learned some lessons. They did get beat up a little bit uh, you know, in the past with the Russian investigation. Mm-hmm. So I think ultra care was taking uh, on this uh, affidavit. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense to me, too. Well, Michael, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to be with us. Very helpful, clarifying many details. Thank you. Thank you. Michael Tappan is a former head of the FBI's Minneapolis field office. He served in the Bureau for 24 years, where he had uh, significant authority over 250 agents across three states. You know, there's a good good chance to just point make a historical note and that is, uh, there was a tremendous, actually a very strong relationship between the FBI and the Catholic Church. Not so much in terms of direct institutional connection, but F, uh, J. Edgar Hoover made no secret of his high regard for the Catholic faith. He, he was a Protestant himself, but he shared uh, Catholicism's values, uh, such as anti-communism, and the uh, they had similar attitudes uh, of how a well-ordered society uh, should run. Hoover and his agents uh, had relationships with some of the most influential Catholic uh, leaders of the time. Uh, Edward E. Tam, the FBI's highest-ranking Catholic, uh, forged an alliance uh, with Father John Cronin, who uh, actually created a 1945 report on the dangers of communism. Uh, Father Edward Conway, Jesuit, uh, actually did some spying on behalf of the FBI while he was treasurer of the National Committee for Atomic Information. And Monsignor Charles Owen Rice uh, had a uh, actually did some reporting on communists within the uh, union of the CIO. So there was, you know, there were lots of, uh, there was lots of overlap between FBI and uh, at least high-ranking Catholics of the period. 
I had the opportunity years ago of interviewing Bill Romer. Uh, he's known as the FBI agent uh, who broke the Chicago mob, and he, he wrote a number of books about it. Romer, Man Against the Mob being one of them. And he also pointed out to me uh, how strong the connection was between the culture of the FBI and certain understanding of the Catholic man. This got strained, though, in the 1960s with the Vietnam War. Hoover began to distance himself from the Catholic Church because there were so many Catholics who were against the war. But during an important period of American history, there was a strong relationship between the leaders of the FBI and many leaders in the Catholic Church in America.